0: Welcome to You Wanted A Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation, and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast, Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus,
1: until we hit play. This is me, waiting for Mike to join the podcast. Oh yeah. Opening up a sweet Sierra Nevada here, Pouring it into a nice glass. Getting ready for a recording session. Looking forward to this episode.
0: It's 2023, first episode of the year. New year, very excited. Uh, I know that we have a lot of new listeners in the last six weeks or so. Been reaching out, seeing reviews, people tweeting at us, sending us Instagram messages. Keep it up. We want to hear from you. It's really fun to see. I hope that we don't disappoint. I I think we've got a great story
1: here. Well, I was going to say you chose the song this week, so <laughs> no, it's disappointing. It's my fault. All on you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, something I kept in mind is that we have a lot of new listeners, and I wanted—I wanted a really good story, and we got it. Okay, we got it. I'm ready, and, and on my first try too. First song I looked up, I was like, amazing. Oh, really? So, All
1: right, what do we got? Good.
0: Uh, well, here is the song that we will be discussing tonight. On you wanted a
1: hit. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yes. <clears throat> I gotta let it kick in. Yeah, you do. I love this song. I'm so happy hyper- with this. This has been on the list for, uh, for a long this time. This is on your radar? For me. Oh yeah, because I love this song, but it makes no sense. It just should not be it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have quite the roller
0: coaster here ahead of us.
1: Let's go. Uh, oh, I I know absolutely nothing about gagita, so I'm here for it. About what? Isn't their name gagita? No. Okay, never mind. <laughs> who is who is gagita? I don't know. I want to know what you're thinking mm. of now. No, you know, as a band gagita. Hey, that's a song called Whoever You Are, which is also a weird hit. It, and I don't know if it was a hit, but it was somewhat popular.
0: It needs to be on the list. You should, you should cover <laughs> it. one. It is on the list. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: have com- conflating songs there. This song <laughs> hey, <bring us> back.
0: <laughs> is Tom's Diner, by, Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega and DNA. Yes. yes. It was released in 1990. Suzanne Vega is a folk rock singer who was born in 1959 in Santa Monica Buzu. when she was a toddler. Her family moved to New York city where she grew up in Spanish Harlem.
1: And when already, I know her family's cool because she was born in Santa Monica in the late fifties and then moved to New York. Her parents are obviously just like, uh, avant-garde theater people or, They're... or some, something in the media. I like
0: she her. has interesting parents. Uh, her mom was a computer engineer, like, Mm. in the 60s so like the giant he would not have guessed that giant supercomputers they lived in Spanish Harlem and um, Suzanne went to a performing arts high school where she studied dance Uh, and her mother Pat married the Puerto Rican critically acclaimed novelist and activist Ed Vega shortly after Suzanne was born so Ed raised her as her father so he's a super interesting guy Uh, there's a lot online about him because he has a couple famous novels I must share the titles of two of his most Hmm. famous novels because the titles are completely absurd. The first is no matter how much you promise to cook or pay the rent, you blew it because Bill Bailey ain't never coming home again. (laughs) The other is the lamentable journey of Omaha Bigelow into the impenetrable Loisida jungle. Okay. Yeah. So like, sure. It seems like pretty heady stuff with tons of references and allusions to other things and multiple languages, different types of people. seems really interesting. Um, But Suzanne did not know that Ed wasn't her biological father until she was nine years old. And in a 2016 feature in the guardian about Suzanne written by Andrew Anthony, Suzanne said, all kinds of issues came up mostly of identity because I was raised to be a proud half Puerto Rican girl. And I love my grandmother and aunt and I've been to Puerto Rico And I spoke Spanish and ate Puerto Rican food. And then suddenly I was told that I wasn't Puerto Rican.
1: Mm. And
0: she was growing up in Spanish Harlem. So uh, interesting time in her life. She brings it up a lot in interviews. So uh, I I think-
1: It's like the reverse snow.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it kind of (laughs) is. Yeah. Uh, So it seems like it's been a big, that kind of traumatic experience has been a big part of her life, but also the influence from the way she grew up has been really important to her. Uh, she did meet her biological father in her twenties, and they remain close to this day, which is nice mm-hmm. yeah. uh Suzanne attended Bernard College, which is a private all women's school in Manhattan that's now a sister school to Columbia University while yeah. she's there in the early eighties, she started singing and playing guitar in Greenwich Village, and she was part of folk legend Jack Hardy's songwriters group that met at Jazz Club Cornelia Street Cafe in Greenwich, which just closed I think last year. Uh, Jack put together compilation albums of local folk artists along with his zine, which was called Fast Folk. These compilations contain the first recordings of artists such as Lyle Lovett, Tracy Chapman, Sean Colvin, John Gorka, and Michelle Shocked. Okay. Suzanne was featured on one of these compilations, and that led to her signing a deal with A&M Records. The Guardian piece I mentioned has a great description of what Suzanne was like when she first started releasing music. It says... She arrived in the mid-80s, age 25, during the height of female flamboyance, when Madonna and Cyndi Lauper were strutting their exhibitionist stuff. By contrast, she looked as if she was going for a coffee in the student union. (laughs) Uh, She released her self-titled debut album in 1985, and Suzanne found immediate success in the UK and was building an audience here in the US, especially after MTV put the song Marlene on the Wall into rotation. Uh, I wasn't familiar either.
1: It's interesting. She became popular in the UK first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she strikes me as a UK artist. Yeah, the UK.
0: Uh, I feel like generally reacts well to American like
1: folk artists, you know, especially female. Like this. Yeah. This has like cranberry vibes to For The sure. song are playing right now.
0: Yeah, it's a good song. I this this rip
1: looks like, like it's from VH1 Classic. <laughs> fighting things oh yeah. See. I think it's called My Destiny that I am changing on
0: the wall. So this success that she had on her first record led to collaborations with Philip Glass and mm-hmm. also led to Suzanne lending a song to the soundtrack for the John Hughes film Pretty in Pink. Mm-hmm. And actually Joe Jackson plays piano on that song. And Susanna is generally credited with helping spark the folk rock revival of the 1980s. So getting back to kind of the, you know, acoustic guitar storytelling sort of thing, I think very much as a reaction to New Wave and glam rock and hair metal and just like all this like excess that was that was going on in pop music. Sure. Um her second album, Solitude Standing, followed in 1987. This is the album that really broke her in the U.S. It went platinum. Great, great year. And was, <laughs> yeah, and was <laughs> showered with critical praise and Grammy nominations. And it had Suzanne's <clears throat> biggest hit to date at the time called Luca, which is a song from the perspective of an abused child.
1: It's a very uh, light topic. Yeah. It's very like, uh, ooh, even the opening chords there sound very Joni Mitchell X. Yeah, I can Where see that. Like, uh, I can, yeah, def- but like the idea of a song about someone who's been abused as a child is. There's a handful of Joni Mitchell songs of that nature. I was
0: actually thinking Joni Mitchell a lot while I've been listening to Suzanne. I listened to a ton of Suzanne in the last few days.
1: A lot of good songs. Yeah, like a very much like a storytelling. Yeah. So This song's way poppier.
0: But it's a jam and the guitar tones are awesome
1: Yeah it's way more produced sounding than the last one
0: Well she could prove herself on the first record And then they gave her the recording budget she wanted um, The inspiration for Luca uh, is peculiar Especially for a hit song at the time uh, In a TV interview Suzanne's Was it a hit? Yeah it was a, it was a top 10 hit Number 3 hot one Damn shit
1: It's like Deserves the episode on its own
0: she did a TV interview in Europe, and she said, a few years ago, I used to see this group of children playing from my building, and there was one of them whose name was Luca, who seemed a little bit distinctive from the other children. I always remembered his name, and I always remembered his face, and I didn't know much about him, but he just seemed set apart from these other children that I used to see playing. And his character is what I based the song Luca on. In the song, the boy Luca is an abused child. In real life, I don't think he was, but I think he was just a little bit different. So she's just kind of using that to... She said somewhere else, like, I wanted to tell a story that doesn't get often told in pop music. The YouTube comments for that video are rather intense. A lot of people sure. found solace in the song over the years. Um, and she's, <laughs> she's mentioned that she actually frequently reads the comments on her on that song because it's inspiring to her and she likes to connect with people. So uh, the kid who plays Luca in the video went on to play Jackie <laughs> April Jr. on The Sopranos. Whoa. Fun fact there. Yeah. This album also contained a song that was presented in two versions bookending the record. And this song is called Tom's Diner. Let's take a listen to the first version. Oh. That it's the first track because there's two versions of the song on it.
1: I am sitting in the morning hey, in. at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man. So this is track 1. And he on it only this halfway. album
0: Solitude Standing.
1: I even argue he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. It is always nice to see you. says. For those the who can't man see me, I'm just feeling over here. The woman <laughs> has come in, she is shaking her Theo's <laughs> dancing. So it's like very, acapella-esque, so it's like very acapella-esque, acapella-esque in nature. and It is. It's completely it is. acapella. I could see this working really well. As the first song on the album, now hearing another song or two off the album, mm-hmm. so on its own it's weird, but by itself, well, in connection with the album, isn't it? yeah. This
0: could be fun. Well, here's the other version that's on the album. This is the final song. This is the Tom's Diner reprise. I love the idea of that to begin with. Book ending the album with the same song. It sounds like a video game. <laughs> it does.
1: What it sounds like world? Luigi's mansion, or yeah, something. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it sounds like someone sneaking around in like an eighties like murder mystery movie. Yeah, yeah where
1: they like, they take it one like long step and it's like, whoa, whoa. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was trippy yeah. as fuck. <laughs> Again, on its own, on its own, it's like is weird as hell. But in connection to the whole album, now it's like really trippy. Yeah. But I kind of love the idea of a intro outro on an album. So I, I appreciate this. So as I mentioned, Suzanne went to college in
0: Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And she used to frequent a diner there called Tom's Restaurant. Does that ring a bell for you?
1: Yeah, the Seinfeld Restaurant.
0: It is indeed. The diner, coffee shop, made famous Wow. The exterior as a main setting on Seinfeld. Wow. This song is about the same restaurant. Oh my God. Yep. Uh, amazing. But it was before Seinfeld. So Seinfeld was the diner's second brush with fame, so to speak. Wow. Suzanne wrote an essay about this song for the New York Times in 2008. It's absolutely worth a read. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and in that piece, she gives a description of Tom's restaurant. She said, It was then a cheap, greasy place on 112th and Broadway, and it still is, in spite of its celebrity. Sorry, I've never been to the one in Brooklyn, though I hear it's really cute. The real one isn't cute, and it isn't atmospheric. (laughs) It's just plain, which is why I liked it. And yes, it is the same one they used in the Seinfeld credits, the neon sign that says restaurant. I actually once saw Jerry Seinfeld there. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. In a separate Guardian piece, uh, separate than the one I talked about before, by Dave Simpson that's just about the song. Suzanne paints a great picture of how the restaurant actually inspired the song. She said, I liked its ordinariness. It was the kind of place you'd find on any corner. One day I was in there mulling over a conversation I'd had with a photographer friend, Brian Rose, about romantic alienation. He told me he saw his life as if through a pane of glass. I came out of Tom's with the idea of writing a song about an alienated character who just sees things happening around him. I was walking down Broadway and the melody popped into my head as anyone knows who's listening to the song, there's a lot of very specific references in the song. And this has actually inspired Suzanne's fans and music fanatics to dig deeper into the song. And it's kind of taken on this like mythical life, especially on the internet, like this world of its own based on the musings and like debate from fans and just talking about all the details. And it took on such a life that eventually fans figured out the specific day on which the song takes place. What? (laughs) <laughs> November 18th, 1981. November 18th, 1981. Yep. And okay. Vega fans celebrate that day every year as Tom's Diner Day. The way they landed on this starts with the following lyrics. I open up the paper. There's a story of an actor who had died while he was drinking. It was no one I had heard of. They took that lyric and figured out when when the oh, song that was That's the written. whole thing. That's the whole lyric that led to this. So... Brian Rose, who's the photographer friend who inspired the idea for the song, who was at Tom's with her, he wrote an article about the song a while ago saying that it was 1981 or 1982 when they were at the diner. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk briefly about actor William Holden. Are you familiar with William Holden? I'm familiar. So you might recognize him. Uh, He was one of the biggest movie stars of the 1950s. He's both an Oscar and Emmy Award winner and can be seen in such films as Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, The Wild Bunch, and Network. He died in November 1981, and his body was discovered Monday, November 16th, 1981, having been in his California home for a week after he fell and fatally hit his head while drunk. Mm. Uh, I didn't find anything about substance abuse issues. I was just trying to dig a little deeper. Uh yeah, but, but I mean you you could go that way without Sure, of course. If you say <laughs> yeah, well, you'll see the headline. You would mm-hmm. think, you know, of course it was sensationalized. Um but I did read that he had recently been diagnosed with cancer and that perhaps accelerated his drinking. Well, yeah, um i do The uh the news broke Tuesday, November 17th. But the New York Post, which is one of the only New York papers with the funnies, which are mentioned in the song or comics. Uh that the narrator is seeking. That didn't report it until Wednesday, November 18th. And the horoscopes that the narrator and the song had to turn through were, in fact, right near the funnies in that issue. Alas, it didn't rain that day, as the lyrics suggest, when she wrote about it. So she was asked about this, (laughs) and she said, well, I actually wrote it on two separate mornings at Tom's. One of them could have also been in 1982. But either way, the song was indeed conceived after their breakfast on November 18th, 1981, as fans discovered. Wow. And I actually found photocopies of the post cover with the headline about Holden. And I found the horoscope, the funnies, and the weather, which are all mentioned in the song.
1: Fuck yeah, dude. An investigative journalism. Here's the, here's the cover of the newspaper. Drunken fall, killed Holden. He smashed his head on the table, says Right, Cooner.
0: very sensationalized. Well it is the New York Post. Oh uh, yeah, it's the it's basically a tabloid. So then mm-hmm. here's the funnies that she was talking about
1: from the actual issue she was reading. Uh, what do we got here? We got uh am I gonna recognize any of these? Andy Cap. We know Andy Cap. Andy Cap from uh Yeah the the spicy fries <laughs> <Yeah>. or whatever. <laughs> uh yeah, Mary Worth, Mama. Yeah, I uh, I I know all B's. Oh, B-C, yeah, I know B-C. And then here's
0: the horoscope she mentions in the song. And she is actually a cancer, so this would be her
1: her horoscope. Better not daydream or low form the job. Work performance may be under review. It's not remarkable. And then here's... Well, hey, no, but it is remarkable because she wrote her hit song. That's true, she did. So (laughs) good
0: for her. And then here's the weather. Which is funny because it's not raining, but she said that it was raining another day when
1: she was at Tom's. was sunny, mid fifties. Yep, clear, high thirties, low forties. Artistic liberty. Those are all the yeah. things
0: she was reading in that paper when she, when she had the uh, idea for the song, which is pretty very- cool. I think that people found those. Suzanne goes on about more references in the song. She says the bells of the cathedral that she mentions are those of Saint John the Divine, which is up the street. Uh, she used to have picnics there, uh, though she made up the bit about a woman fixing her stockings and she changed restaurant to diner to make it rhyme, though it is a diner.
1: Can I interrupt you real quick? Sure. Uh, St. John the Divine mm-hmm. has one of the coolest sculptures of all time in front of it. Really? So if you're in New York ever, you listeners, uh, I highly recommend you go up there. It's near Columbia University. It is this like gargantuan globe depicting evil versus you know peace and it's just like this weird i'm to find a picture of this thing cool it is wild here we go it is the peace fountain
0: wow yeah that's really so it's cool a
1: globe and like a centaur fighting off and it's like it's so intricate if you look at all of the details she goes on suzanne talking about the song
0: she kind of describes why it sounds the way it does and she said i imagine this song as some kind of french film background music which totally makes sense the way she's singing, played on a piano, but I don't play piano. So I recorded it a cappella, and I didn't think much more about it after that. Just put it on the album. Uh, So clearly, the song in this form was not made famous from that album, aside from the million or so fans who heard it from buying the record. It was also popular with fans at her shows, as she would start the song with it, a cappella, start the set, singing the song. I love that. And she said that that's what would make the room stop talking and drinking and direct their attention directly to the stage. Oh, can you imagine? I know. Fuck uh, it. She said she even did this at a gig in front of 10,000 people, and it worked. Oh, I imagine. Fuck yeah. I uh, love it. She also mentioned in her New York Times essay that she had heard some people use it to test their speakers, oh. that song in particular, uh, because of the sonic quality of, of the song and the warmth of the human voice. Um, she knows for sure that phil Glass used it at sound checks. but so her and phil Glass were, were friends. Yeah. They collaborated on several songs that oh. on phil Glass songs. She wrote wrote some lyrics. Hmm. But Tom Steiner was not released as a single. You could see why. Uh, and I'm honestly pretty
1: surprised that a&m was cool with her using it as the opening track to the album. And me thinking 80's major label, like I wouldn't even imagine signing it yeah, at the true. Time, So true. They must have just known, like, they a niche trusted here. her vision. Let her do her thing. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. So, yeah. And it wasn't in a TV show or a movie. So, what happened?
1: It definitely could have oh, been. Oh,
0: for sure. Well, according to Suzanne, in 1990, uh, she and her band were backstage at the Arsenio Hall show when her manager told her that some boys calling themselves DNA in England, Bath to be specific, had taken Tom's Diner and put a dance track to it. They had, quote, remixed it. She says, I don't remember what we called that type of music back then. House, rap, hip-hop, it wasn't disco. <laughs> she said her manager, Ron Fierstein told her that A&M and Polygram were considering taking legal action against DNA for copyright violation. DNA is the name of the electronic music duo of Nick Bott and Neil Slateford. Uh, the track that she... Was being told about was called Oh Suzanne! Exclamation point. And it was indeed the Tom's Diner acapella vocal from her album overlaid onto a beat taken from uh, this hit I song from nineteen Turn this
1: on. The original version just like screams mm-hmm. to be remade in some different version. Which
0: wasn't really a thing people did at that time. It was not very
1: common. It's right. uh, coming from me in of course, 2023 I'm feeling that way. Another but... song. What? Yeah what this song becomes so they took the, the drum
0: beat that beat and put it
1: behind oh wow Rockwell. wow yeah. god damn it people are so much more creative than I am <laughs> I would never hear the song and think like let's take this beat and put it behind a Susan Vega song so yeah that's British R&B band
0: Soul to Soul the song is back to life
1: I'm just gonna feel it that I'm <laughs> It
0: is a great song. It's a great, great song. Add to your playlists. Um, I feel like that's a good one to just sneak into a party playlist. Oh, hell yeah. I forgot about this song. In yet another Guardian piece from 2012, Soul to Soul member Jazzy B had this to say about that beat in particular. He said, We weren't trying to follow any trend or fit in any category. We were just doing our own thing. The shuffling beats were a cross between reggae and what was to become known as hip-hop, beats, and electronic sounds.
1: He and Neil were. Wait, 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 when did Back to Life come out?
0: 1989. Okay. So, So the year year before? Yes. So, the the original Tom's Diner came out in 1987. Back to Life came out in 1989. And then this song was made in
1: 1990.
0: It is. Impressive. Okay. Um, So, Nick Bott from DNA said they made this song when he was 22. He and Neil were making music together. And one day, Neil brought in Tom's Diner and said, I reckon we can stick a beat under this. Nick came up with a new bass line, strings, and piano over the soul-to-soul beat. He said, in those days, it was impossible to get a whole song into a sampler, so they spent their evenings and weekends for some time chopping up Suzanne's song into little bits and sampling it piece by piece to piece together the whole song over this beat. Well, wow. The other half of DNA said it was obvious for them to sample the song. He said, if we hadn't done it, someone else would have, because the rhythm was already there in the song. It's a sort of it's sort of true that if you take any hip hop rhythm and you sing da da, da 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 over it, it works. It really does every time. <laughs> sing Tom's diner to almost any hip hop song. Try it. <laughs> oh, we definitely should. should. We? I'm just gonna do it for every every famous hip hop beat with Tom Diner on top of it.
1: We should maybe at the end of this episode. Not right, not tonight. But like, we should both try to sing the song over top of our favorite hip hop song. Yes. Record it uh, that's, that's, and add to the end of this episode. That's going
0: to be for the members only content. <laughs> so DNA tried to license the sample from A and and do it the right way, and A and never responded. So they pressed it onto a 12-inch themselves and sold copies at their local record store. It was selling well, so they sent it to their friend who was a record store sales rep in London. Nick went away for the weekend and came back to his answering machine full of people from record stores asking for the record. <laughs> Suddenly, everyone in the UK was talking about this track, and so much that BBC Radio One played the song, and they broke their policy of never playing bootlegs because so many people had requested it. Wow! The track went to number two on BBC Radio One. Oh shit! And they were only kept off because off of number one because Vanilla Ice's Ninja Rap from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Us was at number one. Well, <laughs> to
1: fair, fair, fair.
0: <laughs> that's a amazing but of course that's when a and got wind of what was going on yeah that'll happened. and it turns out Suzanne typically does not like covers or different versions of her songs okay. though she did really like the Lemonheads cover of Luca which started as a joke because the Lemonheads were so sick of hearing it in the van on video. and then they enjoyed playing it live so much that they ended up recording it and they made a music video too And the story goes that they ran into Suzanne at a diner eating breakfast. (laughs) And she told them how much she loved their cover. Oh,
1: this is already so much better.
0: (laughs) Not better. It's just
1: different. It's cool. It's It's, it's very red. Sounds like the
0: replacements. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's funny because they ended up taking it seriously and making a great cover.
1: So she does like that one. To me, this sounds like way more of a bullying, suicidal type song. Like, Mm -hmm. when you think of, like, that topic, you're like, yeah, you think of, like, Blink-Way 2, Adam Song or something like that. It's like, it's way more, yeah, Jeremy, like, it's way more in that vein than her version was originally. He sounds way more sad. Hers is a little snappy.
0: (laughs) I guess so. Digressions aside, Suzanne expected the worst when she heard about Oh, Suzanne.
1: So she just heard about it. She hadn't
0: heard the song. So A&M, yeah, had told her she about it. She hadn't
1: heard The Greatness yet.
0: Yeah. And she first heard about it backstage of the Arsenio Hall show. So A&M told Suzanne that they're going to take legal action. And she said, well, before you do that, let's hear it. And she expected it full on to be a parody or a bastardization, but she heard it and she was into it right away. Well, how could you? And not she do convinced it? AM that they need to release it as an official single. And this is three years after. The album came out and she's on to the next re- record she's on arsenio hall playing a different record um so she well, yeah for her. she loved it she
1: appreciated that they kept the sound of her voice and all the lyrics oh but can you imagine uh this is so u.s major label it's one thing if you hear someone taking your sample or taking your entire song essentially and being like, yo, we need to sue that person yeah. and season <laughs> yeah. this. It's another thing. If they already have a number two in right. Europe, exactly. Like, the song is clearly yes. doing well.
0: Yeah. Why wouldn't you? I, I don't know. Uh, it's, well, I do know. They're just, first thing they think is, we feel threatened. How do we make money off it right this second? And she's like, hold up, hold up. <laughs> Well, and you I think like it's also of it. that that whole defensive mindset of like, well, if we sue this person, other people won't do it, which isn't true. That's not right. Yeah, we we've learned many times now. She loved their version. She really appreciated they kept the sound of her voice and all the lyrics, and it was still essentially the same song, just a different way of telling the story musically. They did leave the end of the song off, which she asked them about, and they said it just felt weird musically, <laughs> so she let that go. Um. She also loved the track because it didn't sound too produced and she thought it felt authentic. She said, it was obvious that these boys were not slick hi-fi wizards. The sound was boomy and the arrangement was repetitive, but the raw energy of the idea jumped out right away. These were not boys with means and money. I liked that I had kindled their imagination.
1: Okay. Wait, is the end of the song consequential to the original song? I've never heard the original, so I don't know what the end is. I they could tell you the end of the Yeah,
0: end. they leave off the finish my coffee and catch the train. And they had already been chopping up this song for weeks, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get it into the sampler. <laughs> wow. So it is actually consequential to the song, I yeah. think. Uh, it's anything ending the story. Instead, they end with, uh, I'm thinking about the sound of your voice. So that's kind of cool, too.
1: Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Speaking of coffee shops... How can we not mention our friends at Dark Matter Coffee who make excellent, intellectually honest coffee in Chicago, Illinois? We have a coupon code for you Wanted a Hit Cast. That's Wanted a Hit Cast, all one word. It'll get you free shipping at darkmattercoffee.com. You can order beans, you can order merch, you can order coffee accessories. That's darkmattercoffee.com. AM paid DNA a flat fee and then release the song officially. And it was an instant sensation. First thing I thought of when I saw that a paid DNA a flat fee, was like, man, they missed out on a lot of money.
1: <laughs> yeah, 100%. But I, I guess the other option is being sued. True. So oh yeah, you take what you can get. Yeah. You're like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll and from what I've read, rather than you suing me, they just seem chuffed that it was a hit.
0: Like they they just seem genuinely excited about it uh, and still feel that way. Um, they did make a music video for this version because the original didn't have a music video. So let's check that out. It's very
1: nineties, but it's cool. Very nineties,
0: yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, with the dancers in black and, dancers. and white and then the dancers in silhouettes and color. Yeah. Definitely and then there's just like a random bird. Okay, yeah. Sounds uh, like a hawk or a falcon.
1: And the there's, there's some my diner references here. Okay.
0: Yeah, they're like playing drums on a coffee machine and there's a there's a, those little tabletop jukeboxes.
1: What's the eagle hawk thing all about? I'm not sure. Is this like a, It's a bald eagle? Is this like an American theme going on? Like, is it a bald eagle? I think it might be.
0: It is interesting that Suzanne is on the video and neither is DNA. It <laughs> is interesting. Did you say that they had to have a video? There's some burning flowers. MTV. Is it a flower that
1: part of the newspaper? Oh, the newspaper that had that dude's obituary in it. <laughs> had that, that little like, horn sound. What is that exactly?
0: Uh, I think it's a, just a horn section. It's probably sampled from something it else, did. from like a soul song or it's just a just horn a, muted bruh, real quick. Bruh, just like little, little clips. That makes it. Yeah, it's great. That makes it. I think that's one of the things that gives it a little, a little more depth because it's very repetitive. All uh, right. So Nick said that, Nick from DNA said that shortly after they had come out and was doing well and had a music video and whatnot, Suzanne was playing in London. And uh, he and Neil went to go see her and they arranged a meeting in the green room because they never met before. This, they have a hit song together, never met. And it was in the 80s, or in, the, in 1990, which is crazy. Not the first time
1: we've had that, right?
0: Yeah, I feel like that has happened before. And there's people that still had never met.
1: Well, I, I know not remember what it was. Snow, again. Snow and Daddy Yankee never met on oh. that. Uh, there's another collab yeah. where they, I think they still wow. haven't met to this day.
0: <laughs> so they went to go meet her at the show. And Nick said that she opened the show with Tom's Diner acapella and it just like blew their minds to hear it. And they were terrified to meet her. <laughs> and then Suzanne said she's backstage and someone yelled, the DNA boys are here. And she looked up and she said, and I saw like their manager and their accountant. And I was like, we'll bring them in. <laughs> and she was like, because of the sound of the remix i assumed that dna were black so i looked over the heads of these two like skinny white scared kids trying to see what was behind them and my Not manager was like thing. this is dna <laughs> <laughs> and she said nick bot was looking really shy and skinny and neil was a little more cocky uh and, and a little more fat <laughs> yeah and she said uh she said it basically that it was crazy to her because she's this folk Rock singer who came up in Greenwich Village and writing poetry and uh dance clubs and R and B stations are playing her song. (laughs) And she's she was literally seeing dancers on the streets of New York dancing to her song, like on their boom boxes. And she thought it was the coolest thing after growing up in Spanish Harlem and being around dance her whole life in New York. Like it was super neat for her because she didn't think she'd ever see that. And she said that like the icing on the cake was getting a plaque for having one of the most played songs on R and B radio. And she said she cherishes it to this day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. So then many singers, musicians, and DJs started making new versions of Tom's Diner and sending them to Suzanne in the mail. And she loved so many of them that she released an album called Tom's Album, which featured all of her versions, plus her favorite covers and remixes that had been sent to her from around the world. Wow. Uh, and A&M was dumbfounded by this because they were like, oh, you're going to put out an album of all the same song." and she was like no this is cool we have to do it and she said (laughs) people thought it was a bootleg and they would tell her about it like hey do you know about this and she'd be like yeah i made that which is pretty neat yeah uh so yeah this version of tom's diner was a sensation in north america and europe it topped the charts in germany greece austria and switzerland it reached number two in the uk and ireland where do you think it placed on the
1: hot 100 i mean her other song got number three yeah it did is that right i'm gonna go seven you're close it was five
0: yep Ooh, okay uh That's tight the competition difference. um except the number one song is odd and i was actually thinking of adding it to my list yeah uh it's stevie b because i love you that in parentheses the postman song it sounds very familiar. I'm going to shoot this over to you. I don't really see how this went number one.
1: Maybe it's in a movie?
0: I mean, it immediately sounds like a movie. I'm here for it. I, I think I've heard it,
1: but for it to be a number one song, I feel like I should know it a lot more. Like, yeah, I might even think I like this song. It does sound like a movie, but... The Wikipedia would have that. You'd imagine it doesn't say anything about this being in a movie or
0: anything. I, I don't know. We we'll might have to talk about this a little more at another time. I think so. I have to add that one. Uh, number two, we have Madonna, "Justify My Love." Sure. Beth Midler, Wilson Phillips, "Damn Yankees," Whitney Houston, "Freedom" by George Michael, Ooh. UB40, and then "Sensitivity" by Ralph Tresvant. Uh, Don't know. He's the lead singer of New Edition. (laughs) Front man. Well,
1: I don't know if he's a front man.
0: I mean, New Edition also had Bobby Brown and Belle Bib DeVoe. So Suzanne still gets constant requests for sampling the song, and she says yes to almost all of them.
1: Tell me Moby did it. I don't
0: think so. (laughs) I didn't see Moby anywhere. Um, She says that one day she might put out some sequels to Tom's album that has all these different remixes and versions, but she did say that the legal aspect was a nightmare and she doesn't know if she wants to do that again.
1: <laughs> Can I find um, Tom's album? On yeah, Spotify it's or still up
0: everywhere. Yeah. Oh, it's really cool. It. What's yeah. Uh, and it also has two more collaborations with DNA on there. Uh, yeah. Hell yeah. Um, I got to say, I don't think I've seen a song on this podcast. That's been more sampled than Tom's diner. Like the list is insane. Damn, Here's okay. just a short list, a short list of all the artists who have sampled any version of Tom's Diner. Aaliyah, Missy Elliott, and Timbaland. Timbaland actually sampled it twice. Sh- Sheila E., <laughs> Snoop Dogg, Weird Al. It's in Polka, Your Eyes Out. It's in one of his book, oh, okay. Yeah. The sure. Debrat, Tech 9 Tyga, Doja Cat, David Guetta, Logic, Black Eyed Peas, Drake, Felt, Royce to Five Nine, Cascade, Destiny's Child, be real dr dre and exhibit lil kim easy e 702 and cnc music factory and then i stopped i stopped listing them
1: damn some of them are very recent yes some
0: of them are very Holy recent shit and there are a couple notable ones that i we have to talk about um one of which is the most perhaps the most successful of them um it is this Fallout Boy's 2014 top 10 hit "Centuries," oh wow, yeah, which I'm sure you know. Oh yeah, the beginning of the song is straight up out of Tom Simon. Why? (laughs) I very much dislike this song.
1: right it's so quick. (laughs) It is. You don't like this song? Not really. I'm just not a fan. I mean, look, I know, but I'm not a fan either. But it's goofy as hell. You write this song because you can't wait to hear it every fucking Saturday during college football season. That's why right, you write a song course, like this, and yeah. it worked. Yeah, it worked,
0: yeah.
1: It's like ESPN fodder uh, right here. Hey, it's just not for me. I hear
0: this segment is actually not a sample in this song. We've talked about this before. It's an interpolation because she appears in the video, but it was actually re-recorded by American singer Lolo for the track. Oh. Singer Patrick Stump described the inclusion as a tip of the hat to Tom's Diner and he said that he wanted to re inject it into popular culture. And I'm like, how cocky are you? This song is still massive and all these artists are still sampling it. Like what? I don't know if we really need Patrick Stump to reinject this into
1: And also, it's literally popular like a culture. Two second moment. No right. one's but no one's listening to that song and being like, wait a minute, what is that?
0: Vega is straight up credited
1: as a co-writer for centuries. Wow. All right. So she made a lot of so, money off that song. Yeah. She definitely did. Huh.
0: Another one I want to talk about, not as much of a popular one, but it's super interesting. Um, I don't think I'd ever heard this before, but Tupac has a song called Dope Fiends Dying. (laughs) Where he's essentially singing. It's like a a reinterpretation because yeah, cool. he's singing Tom's um, Diner but it's all different lyrics and it's about a shooting the wow. and it's the song's essentially about you know like living living in an area where these things happen like you're just eating at a diner and this happens and essentially how the media doesn't cover that and you don't hear those stories about people just trying to get a snack and they're in the line of fire oh, yeah Um, so like basically just like the flight of real life people and And he recorded it a couple different times and i think he might have performed it live but it didn't come out the real studio version didn't come out until 2007 on a collection best of tupac life another one which is uh (laughs) just has to be talked about (laughs) rem (laughs) covered this song live What? And it ha- it's Michael Stipe singing it a cappella and Mike Mills beatboxing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I cannot wait. <laughs> R.E.M. Bingo hand job, pound designer. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So R.E.M. in oh, the a 91. Okay. In the early 90s would play a lot of secret shows. Because, they, you know, they're a barber.
1: And they play under Bingo They play under the
0: name Bingo Handjob. Oh and this is from a show in London at a club. And they, they covered the song. And uh, when Suzanne put together Tom's album... she wanted to include this live audio of rem doing the song and they said yes but they would only be credited as bingo handjob so if you listen to tom's album even now you go to spotify or apple music or whatever it says bingo handjob and it's REM. (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing it's i I think it's hilarious it's great i'm surprised that she was like i mean she's like it's rem one of the biggest fans on the planet at the time Especially in the folk rock space, in her space. Yeah, yeah. Like, how mad can she get? And they also had a great sense of humor. Perhaps the most notable cover, straight-up cover, is Eurodance and electronic music legend Giorgio Moroder's cover, which features Britney Spears
1: oh. from 2015. Have you heard this? I think I have, actually. It's really good. It sounds very familiar. So this video is... uh, I appreciate that they got the the eagle back in there. And it's very similar to the old video, but these answers are definitely different. Obviously, Mm. Britney's a part of it. It looks almost like fake. It does look like a fan video, but it's... I have not heard this one.
0: It's pretty cool. It's a great cover. And Britney's kind of perfect. Britney's kind of perfect for that song because her voice kind of sounds a little robotic, and it's like a very electronic... Yeah, it's a little more like techno-esque. So this song clearly has a formidable legacy, considering how much it's still influencing music directly today. I mean, just so many songs sampling it, people inspired by it. The song is also credited as one of the first trip-hop songs to permeate the mainstream. For those unfamiliar, trip-hop is a genre that originated in the early 90s in the UK, especially Bristol. It's a psychedelic fusion of hip-hop and electronica with slow tempos and an atmospheric sound. It's often incorporating elements of jazz, soul, funk, reggae, dub, R&B, and other forms of electronic music. For reference, some notable trip-hop artists are Massive Attack, Portishead, DJ Shadow, Sneaker Pimps, Thievery Corporation. So it's those slow, huge beats that are like straight out of hip-hop with... You know, ethereal psychedelic instrumentation, and a lot of times a female vocalist. Some of it can be kind of like talking, talking singing. So, uh, this yeah. Was for, like, at
1: first, I was a little, I was questioning that, but I was like, yeah, actually,
0: it does. Yeah, if you listen to a lot of those artists, it's like, yeah, I could totally
1: hear. If you told me one of these artists did this song, I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It definitely does. I'm still trying to figure out why the song permeates so well. It's catchy as hell, but
0: it is i mean i think it's like the acapella version i don't know how much we would be into it if we didn't know this version yeah 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. but this version it's like you're intrigued when it starts out and then the beat comes in and i'm like okay this is really cool and then i think because the beat is so great and repetitive you keep listening to it but you're listening to the lyrics because that's the only thing that's changing yeah and the lyrics are interesting and it's a cool little story sure, yeah uh sucks
1: you in yeah
0: I think it's honestly, I think beyond Suzanne's great lyrics and, and voice, the beat is just killer. Yeah. The beat and the instrumentation. I mean, 100%. Are like the, the fact that that many legendary artists sampled and are still sampling the song is just so remarkable. Great. It's, I think it's some inexplicable thing. I, I really like this quotation from a 2015 article in The Verge that was written by Jameson Cox. Uh, it's about the song and Cox says Tom's diner is over 30 years old, but it's built out of parts that are timeless. They're the lyrics, which read like the sort of observational creative nonfiction you see threaded through your Twitter timeline every day. Like a man walks into a diner for coffee and gets caught up in watching the people around him. He reads a newspaper and gets lost in a thicket of fond memory before leaving to catch a train. (laughs) There's the song's close miced acapella intimacy with Suzanne Vega's warm voice ripping at the edges like she's singing right into the lid of a MacBook. There's the melody tossed wordless into the song's outro like an afterthought and denied a resolution. a melody that since sliced its way through three decades of music, always stepping out of the diner with a cloudy head. like that's just how you feel when you listen yeah. to it. Like I think that captures the essence so much
1: of the uh, the MacBook comment. It is true. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like great recording. It is
0: very, like, yeah, she's like right, tingy. she's, like, right there, singing. Yeah. It. I'm two inches away from the mic right now. However, there is an even more fascinating and fantastically notable part of the legacy of this song, and it's kind of like a second part to the story, or third part to the story, rather. I mentioned before that when the original came out in 1987, some audiophiles use the track to test speaker systems for clarity. In a 2008 Mental Floss article by Chris Higgins, it states that the song was considered a good, warm recording of a human voice, something that could reveal flaws in an audio setup. I also mentioned German engineer Karl Heinz Brandenburg. Well, he's back, baby. <laughs> Karl Heinz is back. He was working on an audio compression system that could shrink audio files to a fraction of the size of what was currently available without losing noticeable quality in the sound. It was done by eliminating the least essential elements of the music and essentially tricking the human ear into believing that they're there. He was working at the Fraunhofer Society in Germany, and he picked this song as it would be extra noticeable how much quality was lost when compressing it, and the voice was so warm that he felt like it would be challenging and would put his test to the limit. Uh, It sounds like he heard the song somewhere and had that thought. I don't know where... He heard it because it wasn't really being played on the radio yet, but not sure he knew the song. Uh, Branden- <clears throat> Brandenburg compressed the track over and over and over and over, tweaking it for months, and it started to become the rhythmic guide to his work for him and his team. This is what it sounded like when he first put the song through the system. This is, this is the recording of his first try compressing the song.
1: I love it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It could be fun. <laughs> it's like very overmodulated light in the yeah. background. I, w- I would sample this in the song. Right?
0: Uh, maybe it's happened. Uh, so he, he's This is what it sounds like at first, and then he's going to keep compressing it and compressing it over and over again until he can compress it and it sounds like the song. Okay. So going back to Suzanne Vega's New York Times essay about Tom's Diner, One Day in 2000, she was dropping off her daughter at school, and one of the fathers approached her and said, and this is 2000, a number of years later, this father approached her and said, congratulations on being the mother of the MP3. She was rather confused. The man said he had read an article in a business magazine that said she was the mother of the MP3 because her song was used to develop the technology, and it was the first song ever successfully converted to MP3. Holy shit! Right? I just gave myself
1: goosebumps. Wow. <laughs> when you were telling it earlier, I was like, wow, did this song become like the, the start of Spotify? And it kind of does. Kind of. Holy does. shit. So she checked out the article. She went searching for the article.
0: She didn't know about this. And the article was called Ben Ein Paradigm Shifter. The MP3 format is a product of Suzanne Vega's voice and this <laughs> man's ears. And she didn't know about this. Whoa! Now it's a famous story. But at the time, Suzanne had never heard this despite it being having been years since the format was created with her song. However, 2000 was right about the time that MP3 technology was available to the public. I mean, it wasn't possible to make or listen to MP3s for general public until that time. Damn. She was so thrilled that she visited Brandenburg at the Fraunhofer Society in Germany. <laughs> and uh, she ended up being on a panel with him about the MP3. And the funny thing is that I wouldn't say it got heated, but it sounded like they had a little bit of a contentious moment during the panel. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, they're demonstrating what the MP3 does on this panel and uh the one guy in on the panel says, "See? Now the MP3 recreates it perfectly, exactly the same." And she says, "Actually, to my ears it sounds like there's a little more high end in the MP3 version." <laughs> It doesn't sound as warm as the original. Maybe a tiny bit of bit of bottom end is lost. <laughs> and he looks at her and he says, no, Miss Vega, it's exactly the same. And she says, everybody knows that an MP3 compresses the sound and therefore loses some of the warmth. That's why some people collect vinyl. <laughs> and then she said, I suddenly caught myself realizing who I was speaking to in front of a room full of German media. <laughs> and then she says she'd been reading about mp3s and the reason that she had this in her head was because she'd read about it and she was thinking like if i hadn't read about that i might not have actually noticed it because again the whole thing with mp3 is that like there are certain things missing that like you wouldn't hear in a wave file or a cd um but your brain just kind of fills it in and they said no miss vega consider the black box theory (laughs) the black box theory states that what goes into the black box remains unchanged whatever goes in comes out the same way nothing's left behind and nothing is added and then she said i decided it was wise to back down
1: <laughs> i also love that like this guy invented the mp3 and she's like well mp3 is obviously distort the sound he's like how do you know <laughs> like, i just invented it a minute ago with your song <laughs> So there you have it.
0: Tom's Diner was the first wow. song ever converted to MP3. And the MP3 likely would not sound
1: the way it does today if it weren't for that song. And the iPod wouldn't exist. And Apple wouldn't be what Apple is. And we wouldn't have a podcast. Because podcasts wouldn't be around.
0: <laughs> we do upload our podcast in MP3. That's yeah. the standard format for podcasts. So thank you, Suzanne.
1: Damn. Yeah. So... Where's Suzanne now? Well, still live and still touring because uh, underneath this YouTube video it said that she's coming to New York in April, so I'm gonna go. Dude, honestly you should. I feel like it'd be a great show. I would be to Chester, New York, it's a little city, but must still go. Yeah, you know. Uh
0: well, Suzanne Vega did not have another top ten hit after Luca and Tom's Diner. In fact, I mean, she, she loved endearingly... one,
1: let alone two.
0: Right. <laughs> so <laughs> Well, she endearingly calls herself a two-hit wonder, (laughs) despite the fact that she's had nearly 40 years of success and millions of albums sold. (laughs) Uh, But she's still a beloved performer. She tours the world. Uh, She's still releasing albums and won her second Grammy Award in 2008. She also has a Peabody Award she won in 2004. She continues to collaborate with artists and producers, including a collaboration with Danger Mouse in 2010. Uh, Interestingly... Uh, That Guardian article I brought up at the beginning, from 2016, I learned that she's auditioned unsuccessfully for several high-profile film parts down the years. She was up for the role of the underground musician in Desperately Seeking Susan, but lost out to Madonna. She got rejected as a nun in Sister Act because her audition was too dark. (laughs) And she nearly played opposite Tom Cruise in The Color of Money. (laughs) What's crazy is that she never landed a film role. She clearly wanted one. She, she did these auditions, but then her music career took off, so she just... Oh, this, this, oh yeah, that. before, I guess. Yeah. Wow, yeah. weird. Well, we um, but she has acted, and she played the part of another young woman who found fame early and was hailed as a prodigious talent, the writer Carson McCullers. Hmm. Five years ago, Vega performed a musical stage piece she wrote with Duncan Shee... Oh! Your boy.
1: Oh! Spring yeah. Awakening. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They uh they wrote a uh they wrote a musical called Carson McCullers Talks About Love. Wow. Portraying the alcoholic disabled writer with her endlessly complex bisexual romantic interests and embittered literary rivalries. Sounds great. Whoa. Interesting. I'd love okay, to I see don't, it. I don't know that one. Okay. Uh they they did tour it. It was a it was a whole thing, and she played she played the main role. Damn. Yep. As for DNA. As well as Tom's Diner, the duo remixed two other Suzanne Vega tracks, Rusted Pipe in 1991, and a radio mix of the song Rosemary in 2000. Uh, they took some time off. They reappeared with a remix of Canadian world and new age singer-songwriter Lorena McKennett's track The Mummer's Dance, which reached number
1: one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1997. Okay, I got a lot of questions. You can add the Philadelphia the Mummers, the Mummers Parade, is a big thing that we do on New Year's Day. Oh. So there really? has to be a connection here.
0: What is, What is it? What is the Mummers Parade?
1: The Mummers Parade, uh, this is going to sound very uh, weird to people. Uh, and uh, if you know anything about Philadelphia, we you know that we love throwing batteries at Santa Claus. But the Mummers Parade is a day <laughs> on New Year's Day when all of the bros... And uh, the policemen, the firefighters of Philadelphia, uh, they dress up in elaborate costumes. They put makeup on, and they have feathers, and they dance around the street what? in fancy outfits and play little jazz songs, and everyone relishes in their glory. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the true thing. If you look at Mummers Parade, uh, wow, I never knew no, about this. No, it's amazing. Uh, so, the... Uh, I don't know the uh, derivation of the Mummers originally. But it might have here, I'm gonna send you a picture, some, some photos here. Oh, this is, crazy. This is incredible. And these are bros that are doing this. Yeah, these are cops. Yeah, and they spend the whole year making these costumes. What? That's wild. So these like
0: guys in these hyper-masculine jobs just like putting on makeup and dresses and you'd never, frills you'd never and sequins. It. Wow. So what's the song called? It's called The Mummer's Dance and it hit number one and I think there's another one I'm going to be adding to the list
1: do you recognize it? the song? yeah I do kind of she might have been to Pure Moods you got it yeah
0: this song is on Pure Moods 2 it's the opening track yeah yeah it's a weird song to be a hit. And also another like kind of, she does like some Celtic folk and like Irish music. So it's like another unexpected folk singer who got the DNA treatment and had a huge hit. It's just crazy. Fucking wild. These guys had two top 10 Hot 100 hits, <laughs> which is crazy. Wild. Uh, and then they also remixed tracks for Collie Minogue and Vanessa Williams in the 90s. Uh-huh. But they're no longer making music together. Uh, it appears they're still friends but Nate Bott is a producer and sound engineer and he worked extensively with Goldfrap on three of their albums <laughs> receiving an Ivor Novello award for co-writing the song Strict Machine, a Goldfrap song uh-huh. and he now runs a music tech podcast called Sonic Slate so check out Sonic Slate, yeah. have not listened to sure. her. but Neil Slateford the other half of DNA co-found love honey which is not a band it is a british company that sells sex toys lingerie and erotic gifts on the internet wow (laughs) their tagline is the sexual happiness people Uh they have sales in upward of 16 million a year oh shit and are the official licensor of 50 shades of gray sex oh my they are exclusive company for 50 shades of gray sex toys
1: (laughs) holy shit another example <laughs> yeah. of someone we've talked about that has made far more money in their non-music career
0: yes holy and we shit. also talked about the the singer of rammstein oh, who yeah. Makes yeah. Sex toys now <laughs> and makes pornography
1: Oh my that God. he stars
0: in um yeah and that's literally the last note i have
1: about this song. <laughs> i mean, might drop a moment there holy <laughs> shit yeah what a story right what a story Started off yeah. with the I had the artist completely wrong, and now I'm I'm I've learned a lot and I'm flabbergasted <laughs> all around. Wow, I gotta go see Suzanne Vega in April. I might, I might go, that'd be awesome. I
0: bet she I hope she still opens with this song. Uh, that would be amazing because she's just
1: always been doing that. I know she still sings it. The cool thing too, she could open with this song a cappella and then close with the the yeah, instrumental the all know, the reprise, and it was still and then do with the and then do the al- DNA so. version in the middle of the set
0: yeah. sure why not I mean she had a whole album where it was just a song so um, well I would be remiss not to open up the old mailbag it's been a couple episodes oh yeah we have been there's a big one perhaps our biggest miss that we've had I
1: mean, I mean uh, that we know of. It's the one we've heard the most about. <laughs> that, that we know I've of, gotten
0: yeah. a number of messages about that. I've got text messages. We have a message on Twitter. I think we got an Instagram message too. Maybe an email. Uh, at least three of those channels. Uh, <laughs> during the last episode, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas? We were talking about the super group Band-Aid who recorded that song, and we were comparing it to... The group that made "We Are the World," USA for Africa, and a lot of the folks in "We Are the World" have passed away. And we were like, "Oh my god, I think everybody in Band Aid is still alive." Well, one of the main people in that song is George Michael. Uh, he's not alive. He I don't does. know how we missed that. I almost mentioned it earlier because George hey, Michael came
1: holidays. On. We were drunk. No, you enough. know. Yeah.
0: Hey, uh, I don't know how we missed that uh no disrespect to george george is great uh we just missed it somehow Uh probably because no, they're only respect
1: we we thought he was still alive we're right? still uh, honoring his legacy yeah, he
0: sounds great in that song he's one of the best parts of the song um yeah. if not the best part of the song so yeah no disrespect to george uh I think it was just that there was an overwhelming amount of people that are alive in that song that was made in the eighties. And it's like 30 different people who all did tons of drugs and toured the world and, uh, you know, are in a, in a precarious. We're impressed that they're all still alive. Yeah, exactly. So sorry to George, please don't haunt our dreams or do, you know, that'd be a good story. Um, I, I did hear from somebody on Twitter, uh, who said that they remembered that George Michael, uh, was dead uh, right away because uh, he died December 26th. Oh. And this person had sung last Christmas on Christmas Eve at a karaoke bar, and then he died two days later. <laughs> and they've been feeling bad about it ever since.
1: <laughs> I know. Sure it wasn't their fault. <laughs>
0: but... Talk about haunting. Yeah, I'd say so. so. I
1: think that's... But speaking of history...
0: I love this song. I love this story. Um this Susan great. Vega great seems song. super cool. I love reading all of her writing and all of her interviews are great. Again, highly recommend the New York Times essay she wrote about this song. It's fascinating. Um and the DNA guys are doing well uh in their respective professions. <laughs> love
1: it. And now <laughs> the episode ends with both Mike and I singing our favorite hip hop songs to the beat of the song. <laughs> Does it work over the whispers on? Oh, good. It's right up. I'm
0: hearing it in my head and it definitely, definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted A Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting that song out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review, but only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at ywahpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was research, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Bible. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.